0: From the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: So let me just say it flat out. I am. Really, really grateful for Dr. Sanjay Gupta. I've always admired him. He's, as you know, the chief medical correspondent for CNN, also a practicing and highly regarded neurosurgeon. He's done a lot of enormously important work in the area of public health. But his presence over the last three months on the airwaves, helping walk us through this coronavirus siege, has been really, really important. And while his messages have been sobering, his insights and his wisdom and his compassion have been deeply comforting as well. I had the chance to chat with Sanjay yesterday uh, about the crisis we're going through, but also about his remarkable personal journey and body of work. It's a great conversation. Let me share it with you now. Sanjay Gupta so so good to be with you. I so appreciate you carving time out. I don't actually understand how you are making the time to do everything that you're doing. You're like a comforting and sobering presence in our homes, uh, morning, noon, and night. And so I feel like I should start by asking you how you are doing.
2: Well, um, th- thank you, uh, David. I, I'm, I'm doing fine. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm tired. Uh, I think like a lot of people are, I think since the beginning of January... You know, I can remember exactly when. It was, it was three days before the first patient was, was confirmed to have the coronavirus infection here in the United States. Um, January 7th for me, I, I've, you know, we, we've been at this nonstop, you know, and, and every day, every weekend, three to four hours of sleep a night. So it's tiring, but I'm, but I'm healthy. I, I, I feel fine otherwise.
1: Are you, I know you're a famed fitness freak. You're very devoted to it. Are you able to do that? Are you able to keep up on that?
2: Yeah, you know, I've, I've really sort of made a point of that, uh, David. So, you know, the it's mostly inside. Like I'll, I'll jump on a stationary bike or I'll jump on a treadmill. I'll do something. Uh, I have to do it, I feel like, every day um, because – uh, first of all, I think just having a little bit of control like that, it just, uh, you know, besides the physical part of it, I think emotionally, mentally, I feel like I have a little bit of control over my day if I've been able to work out. I don't know if that makes sense. But uh, I also, you know, it, it, it's important to, uh, to me to, to exercise. I do, you know, uh, if it's a nice day, I'll go try and get a, a quick run outside as well. So there's usually an hour or so in the day. Uh, I am waking up around 4, 4 4.15, doing the, you know, doing my read-in, you know, for a good hour, hour and a half, and then start doing a little bit of the television stuff until uh, around noon, 12.30 or so. And then I usually can find an hour um, uh, before you know the afternoon shows and into the evening starts. But I, you know, it's it's constantly reading in between as well. That that uh, is important and takes up a lot of the time.
1: And I want to talk to you, like everybody does, about the crisis that we're in. But I also want to give people a sense of exactly who you are, because you have become. You're the guy who who comforts us, who who who's gives us the sobering uh, news. You have been from the beginning. You were like Paul Revere at the the beginning of this thing, warning people about the magnitude of it, would that some of the policymakers had taken that more seriously from the beginning. But, yeah. you know, you describe your day. I suspect your days are not exactly relaxed, even in the best of times. You're a neurosurgeon, practicing neurosurgeon. I assume you're not practicing now, right? Yeah, you know, it's sort of
2: been interesting. Um, we have had, um, you know, all, all the elective sort of operations, uh, have been stopped at hospitals. Uh, you know, most hospitals now around the country. So it is sort of a, a strange confluence of events because I do I do still practice. I, you know, um, go see patients still because I still have patients that I'm following. And, and sometimes there's consults that people want me to weigh in on. Um, but the... the active operating, which I was doing up until, you know, the last few weeks because of uh, the, how the hospitals have changed, that's sort of stopped at, at, at this point. Uh, I don't know how long, but it's given me a little bit of time. You know, I will tell you that it's it's, it's, it's funny because, you know, my closest friends are, are people that I, that I trained with and that I work with in the hospital because it's just such a galvanizing thing to, to be with these people as I have been for, you know, decades now. Um, I joke around with them just, just this morning that I, people say, oh, your surgical residency must have prepared you well for this. And I joke around and say, you know, back then at least we got every other night off. You know, <laughs> now we're not even even getting that. So I, I still spend a lot of time with the folks uh, in hospitals and, and – uh, both on the clinical side, but also trying to understand what their lives are really like, you know, just the nuance of their lives now that's different because of what's happening. And it's its its significant. I think people sort of generally get this, but, but you know, when you're dealing with a, a virus that we're still learning about, and, you know, there's a lot of humility here, you know, usually when you're going on Television or reporting something, I'm saying, you know, based on 10 years worth of data, based on 20 years worth of data. Here, we can't even say that number in weeks, sometimes not even in days. So you have to have a humility here. But for the healthcare workers, and, you know, a lot of them, my friends, they work, they protect themselves the best they can. Um, but it's like, you know, I, I really, did I pinch the nose tight enough on the N95 to make sure? I mean, we always thought about that, but never with the diligence I think now. And then did I take it off in a way that I did not contaminate my hand And if I did contaminate my hand, how many things did I touch before I could get over to the scrub sink and wash my hand? And then I'm going to get in my car. And should I wear a glove when I touch the steering wheel? Because my wife's going to be driving tomorrow. My husband's going to be driving tomorrow. And then God forbid, I think the biggest thing is that you go home and you you unintentionally infect your family. You know, there's people living in their garages. There's people who are living in their basements. I've pretty much been in the basement, uh, you know, for the last several weeks now. I go upstairs occasionally, but I feel, you know, like I have to be as diligent as I can about not infecting my family, given all the things that I'm still doing.
1: I know that this in the last few days has become a lot more personal for you and less clinical because you have lost a friend and colleague, Dr. James Goodrich, who you actually did a documentary about in 2016 when he performed this extraordinary surgery to separate conjoined twins, the first successful surgery of its kind. And then our colleague Chris Cuomo has now presented with coronavirus. I saw you last night talking with him and showing the concern that a friend and a doctor would for his uh, state, which didn't look good. So all this must be impacting on you. I, Dr. Goodrich, you know, the, the, he, he's, you know, I, I
2: could talk about him forever, David, but, you know, First of all, it's it, you know you report on this uh, as 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 much as we have, but I hadn't really known somebody personally up until I found out that that uh, Jim was diagnosed, and and even then I I think when I first heard it I I didn't quite know what to make of it, and I I guess I assumed that he would. That he'd be okay, that he'd get sick, but that he'd be okay. I just, you know, statistically, um, that's that's I think from where you operate in your in your own brain, in your own mind, and and he was one of these guys that you know I've known since I was a resident. He's the kind of guy that uh, I think all inspired us young neurosurgeons. He he was the most interesting man in the world. Traveled all over the world to to go and operate on little kids in in all these far flung places. Established many modern practices of neurosurgery. Uh, I sat with him for 27 hours when he was separating these, these twins, these little babies who were born conjoined. And, you know, you really just get to know somebody. And uh, so, uh, you know, I, I mean, like I said, I could go on and on about the guy. But, you know, it was a reminder, A, that we're probably a lot of us are going to know somebody uh, who's affected by this. Hopefully that doesn't die. But even that may be the case for, for many of us. And, you know, it doesn't discriminate, David, I mean, it you know, even it doesn't matter what you do or who you are. And uh, even somebody who, who spent his life saving so many people uh, lost his life due to this virus. And I guess I guess people know this uh, sort of, you know, from from hearing all the news reports. But it was pretty poignant, I think. And then with Chris Cuomo, you know, he he. um. Like you said, he's sick. You know, he's, he, you know, Chris, Chris is a, is a young, healthy guy. I mean, he, he, he really uh, is yes. one of the... in the extreme. <laughs> yes. He <laughs> likes to talk about his health quite a bit. And, uh, and we've bonded over that over the years, but he, um, but he, uh, you know, he is sick. I, I called him last night after the show because, um, he was telling me things on live television that I had not known, uh, about how sick he was. And, uh, you know, I checked in on him again this morning. How's he, how's he doing? You know he he's doing he's doing okay but he but he is sick and when I when I say that um give you a couple of examples and and I I'm sure he would share this with you but you 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 get these these shivers they're called they're called rigors in in medical terms where they are the intense sort of shaking david where you just you can't you can't even sort of keep up with it and your whole body is shaking to the point where your muscles really hurt and your teeth are chattering at, to the point where you could chip a tooth you know which chris actually did last night you know so it's it's significant and and because of the overload on hospitals right now um, You know, what what he would hear, and I understand why, but he calls the hospital or calls his doctor and they say, look, unless it is something, you know, very, very acute, you got to ride this out at home. You know, we don't want you coming to the hospital. So he's riding it out at home, which I understand. That's not a criticism by any means. But it's just, it's just one of these things where, uh, you know, he's going to have a, a miserable few days. Knowing him, he may still try and do his show and things like that. But it's, it's going to be miserable for a few days.
1: Yeah, yeah. So as to you, I want to get to your just remarkable story and this preternatural drive and discipline that you have, which is an inherited trait. I'm a first generation American. Uh, my father was a refugee. I know you're a first generation American. Tell me about your folks and and their story. Yeah. Um
2: I it, it is something that I that I feel like I was very fortunate uh, to be to be born into their their you know the, the way that they are the, the kind of people that they they have um, instructed my brother and I to, to be they are they're immigrants to this country. Uh, they both uh, came here in the the mid 60s. Um, they met in this country which was very unusual actually for for Indians usually it was arranged marriages my parents actually met in the United States. Well,
1: let's not let this moment go by before you explain exactly how they met, which is quite a story. It's, it's an amazing story. And it's, I
2: think, in many ways shaped uh, our lives, and and also a lot of our, our community's lives, because they, they looked to my parents. You know, At that time, there weren't a lot of Indians in this country. But my mom, um, she came to the United States, uh, wanted to be an automotive engineer. She had read a book about Henry Ford, and she had heard a, a talk once from Jawaharlal Nehru, who was prime minister, uh, of India at the time, where he basically said, look, here, here's where India is going to either win or lose. It's going to be around manufacturing. And, and we're hearing about automotive manufacturing. And I think we need to really lean in to this. And I'm not just talking to the boys out there, I'm also talking to the girls. And my mom was a young kid at the time and, and basically resolved that she was going to do that, which was kind of laughable, because she was born in what is now Pakistan and, uh, you know, was part of that large human migration during the partition of 47. And like your uh, parent, uh, David, she was a refugee for the first uh, 14 years of her life. And so when she's saying, I want to go to the United States and become an automotive engineer, it didn't sound possible at all. But she slowly, you know, progressed her way through through life, uh, ended up um, going to Oklahoma State University, uh, got a scholarship there, and... um, and then was driving cross-country to go to where the jobs were, which was Detroit. That's where she wanted to go, you know, start to, to pursue, you know, finish off her dream of becoming an, an automotive engineer. Um, there were, there was a lot of, you know, obstacles along the way. One of which was that her, her car actually broke down in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which was on the way to Detroit. There's a lot of ironies there, right? She, she's had her whole life dreaming about becoming a automotive engineer. She's driving cross-country, finally there, and then her car breaks down. And, you know, this is the mid-60s. she got hardly any money. She's got no friends, uh, you know, and, and she doesn't know what to do. So she goes to the phone booth and starts basically, uh, through the phone book, trying to find an Indian-sounding name to call somebody because that was the community. Uh, Maybe an Indian will help me. I I got no other options here. She finds one, the most common Indian name in the United States, uh, Patel, right, as as maybe some people know. So she finds a Patel, she calls a Patel, and that person does not answer, is not home, but his roommate is, who is a Gupta, and... um, (laughs) That's how she meets my dad. And my dad, you know, he, he, he's uh, anxious to come help the damsel in distress, and he comes, helps her with the car, and they end up getting married. Incredible story. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty remarkable. And, and also, I think, you know, just culturally, David, I mean, even, even now, uh, among my generation, I'm 50, I turned 50 last year, there's still a lot of uh, focus on arranged marriages. Um, and the fact that my parents had a, quote, love marriage, um, you know, I think it set a tone for, for a large community of people, including myself. I ended up marrying the woman that I love, for example. Not that arranged marriages can't be also love marriages, but, you know, it was of my own,
1: my own choosing and everything. So it was very different. But that whole scenario is like, a, that's like a movie. Right? <laughs> yeah. You can't, you really, incredible. The other thing that was incredible was they both became engineers at Ford. Yeah. And your mom, there were no women there at the time. Which was mentioned to her, apparently, when she interviewed for the job. Like, it was like they were having a hard time computing what this would mean to hire a woman. Uh,
2: absolutely. And, and she, I don't think she realized that when she first started pursuing this, that not only was she trying to become an engineer as a, as a girl who was a refugee on the other side of the world, but that she was a woman and, and that was going to be another obstacle, they told her she, she basically just starts showing up at these places in the winter time at Michigan, um, very cold outside. She's wearing sari, which is, you know, the tr- traditional Indian garb and and just knocking on doors at Ford Motor Company. And they are bewildered by her saying, look, I mean, wh- what what's the job you're, you're applying for? And she says, as an engineer, I have an engineering degree. And they're like, we don't have any women engineers. And, and her response, which I guess made total sense, was, well, you never will unless you hire me. And, <laughs> and they did. She was 24 years old at the 24 time. 24 right? years old. So very, very, um, very, uh, you know, ambitious, courageous, you know, um, uh, sometimes frightened but undaunted, I think. I, I Just one quick side story. You know, my mom, her name is Damienti, which is a long name. Um, so her, the person that ended up hiring her basically said, you, 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 you've got to change your name, which, you know, nowadays, I mean, y- y- <laughs> you wouldn't ask somebody to do that. But back then she said, okay, you know what? Um, I'll give you a nickname. And the nickname she gave her, her then boss was Ronnie, R-A-N-I. And she came up with it on the spot and Rani means queen in Hindi. So she basically was saying, look, if you're going to make me change my my name, then you are going to call me queen for the rest of (laughs) my career. Which they still call her.
1: Both your parents, actually. Your your dad also went by an Americanized name when he was there. Yeah. Um, his
2: name is Sebash and, and uh, they um, his, his name, they called him Sam.
1: Now, you yourself, you said that there was a time in your life when you wanted to change your name, that you wanted to change your name to Steve. <laughs> but there was a serious, there was something serious behind it, which was you experienced some unpleasantness, some bullying. And- Talk a little bit about that—the experience of being a young Indian American in Novi, Michigan.
2: Yeah, I mean, we 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 lived in a in a really small, um, very homogenous town, and uh, there there just weren't uh, other people that looked like me, that that had names like ours, that um, ate the sort of foods that we did, that practiced the cultural traditions that we did, all of that, and you know, I it was, I. You know, since then, I, I've heard a lot of people's ex- experiences, and I think that mine uh, were, were not unique in that regard. But as a, you know, six or seven-year-old kid, um, it's it's tough to make sense of it. It was a, a little bit of a dissonance. Like, you'd go to school and you'd have this entire life that was very American, you know, very sort of uh, small-town, homogenous, traditional American, and then come home and... Everything was different. The smells, the sights, the language, you know, the music that was being played. So it was a real sort of uh, toggling back and forth of life. And I remember like even your clothes, because my mom used very very uh, traditional spices in the cooking. So even the clothes, no matter how much washing, you couldn't get the smell out of the clothes, uh, you know, sort of the brill cream uh, hairstyles was a big deal in India. So it was always tons of brill cream in my hair, uh, which made for a lot of fodder for for you know bullying and, and teasing and things like that. I, um, I, I did want to change my name because I think at some point when you're that young, you think, well, that'll solve it, you know. I change my name, and that therefore I become somebody different immediately. Um, Steve, f- for me, um, was was based on Steve Austin, not not the wrestler. Uh, Six Million Dollar Man. Yes. So you, you remember that. You know, it's funny, uh, David. The, the younger generation, I say Steve Austin, they all think of the, the wrestler, like Steve Austin. <laughs> the six, What is that? <laughs>
1: but the, yeah, it was a $6 million man, Steve Austin. The great Lee Majors. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, was the actor. Yes, that was a TV show of that era. It was very popular. Yeah, yeah. But by the time you got to high school, I mean, you were on the debate team, and you were in theater, and, and you were in student government, and... You were the valedictorian, and you were voted most likely to succeed. So you obviously assimilated well over time.
2: Yeah, I think I think I became a a um, a joiner, I guess, if you would say. You know, that ended up being my strategy. You know, just um, instead of um, isolating myself, um, join. A lot. Now, I, I, I will say, you know, and, and again, I, I've thought a lot about this over the years. And now that I'm a parent myself, I, I think about it a little bit differently. But, you know, joining doesn't necessarily mean belonging. Um, you know, it, it, there, there's still a difference. And, I, and I've and um, i always remembered that. I mean, there's a lot of people out there that are very involved in things. and And it doesn't and sometimes they still aren't completely accepted, even though they're 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 engaged, and I think that was sort of my my situation. Um, I, I I don't know that in in high school still it was still a very small town, very homogenous town. I was still I think uh, more of a an oddity to them. People wanted me to be involved so they could say that they had a guy like me who looked different, sounded different involved. Um, and I, 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 I don't want that to come off like I'm, you know, have some so- sore feelings about that time period. I don't, but I wasn't, even though I was, you know, in student body, uh, leader and, and, and involved with all these various clubs, I never still had a sense that I belong there. And, and I think that that has, um, I think that's something that's, that's stuck with me, uh, not paralyzed me, maybe even fueled me in some ways. But despite that bio that you read on people sometimes, I, I can tell you for, for, for people like me uh, of my, my generation that are Indians and maybe other minority groups as well, that reading those bios, even if they seem impressive, doesn't necessarily reflect the whole story. Uh, and that, I think
1: that was the case for me. Yeah, and this is the, you must, as you watch, and I know you're pretty assiduous about staying out of politics, but this is a difficult time for a country that is so much an immigrant country. We're seeing this backlash against immigrants, and I know Indian Americans and many Americans are feeling that backlash right now, and that must cause you to flash back to those years and those feelings.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that the, you know, the strange thing about it is, and I have a brother who's 10 years younger, which almost feels like a different generation sometimes. And then obviously uh, I talk to my parents a lot who are both still living in, in Florida, staying staying healthy and at home. Um, but this is a topic of conversation, especially around the big immigration uh, debates and discussions lately. I, I, I don't know that it feels like a flashback as much as it feels like, not a surprise, you know, in some ways it's, I, 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 what I think we have discussed and felt, and it's just our own experience uh, is that some of the, some of the, the, um, the negative attitudes and stuff like that we feel have, have just always been there. And, and luckily we have gone through a period of time where we've had leaders who, who just went out of their way to, to, to embrace, you know, people from all these different backgrounds and and beliefs and all that, um, but I don't know that there wasn't still this significant undercurrent of people who still felt the same way, you know, despite how they acted, um, what they believed in their hearts, or how they acted behind closed doors. I don't know, you know. It's I think it's I think it's tough.
1: Yeah, no, it makes sense. The, the thing about it is that, you know, your story, your family's story, these are great American stories. Mm. I mean, this is, I don't think my uh, father and his family were all that welcomed by everyone when they arrived from Eastern Europe. But generations of immigrants have helped make this country strong, vibrant, mm-hmm. people who came here striving, wanting to build a better life. And, um, you know, that message should never be lost. I think if we lose that, we lose who we are.
2: Yeah I, look I, I um my, my dad likes to say and I know other people have echoed a similar sentiment that he 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 loves the United States. I mean he he loves this country um so much and and perhaps it's obvious but you know unlike my mom my dad you know came from a much wealthier family in in India and would have been perfectly fine Uh, Staying there and you know had um, been in boarding school in different places could have had Chosen a life in many different places. He came here because he loved the United States and he thinks of himself as having because he made that choice Versus having been born here as being a very significant thing. I made the choice to be an American, I made the choice to, to live in the United States, you know, and and that's 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 deeply meaningful to him, you know, when he thinks about this whole issue. I don't know that it'll be it'll convey the same meaning to, to everyone, but um, f- for him, you know, it's I think what it's what he always pivots to, you know, we are very much Americans. Maybe some would argue even. More so, because at some point in our lives we had to make this choice, and and um, it shows just how much we were willing to sacrifice to be Americans. And um, you know, it's it's uh, I I I I've held on to that when he told me that
1: you went all of 20 miles to college <laughs> uh, uh, down over to Ann Arbor to the University of Michigan. You could have gone anywhere. You. But you always knew, apparently, you wanted to go to the University of Michigan. Beyond that, you knew you wanted to be a doctor.
2: Yeah, I. I um, nobody in my family was a doctor. I, I chose medicine um, probably pretty young, 12, 13 years old. I, I, um, I my mom's dad, uh, who was uh, who had come to the United States, he got sick at one point and um, had a stroke. And uh, we were very close. I spent a lot of time in the hospital. And I think it was the first time I really um, saw how a hospital worked, and saw that these 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 uh, healers, these doctors, um, you know, that this was their profession and what that was like. So I kind of I kind of was pretty pretty sure, you know, per, you know, around that age, that's what I wanted to do. Um, Michigan had a had a program that um, um, basically allowed you to to be accepted into medical school out of high school, and once I heard about that program. That's what I wanted. And, you know, when you have a mom who says, look, I traveled around the world uh, as a refugee uh, to become the first woman engineer in the automotive industry in the United States. Uh, yeah, sure. You can go do that. You can you can go do this. So there, there wasn't you know, it was a pretty high bar already. But that's that's what really, uh, I think, inspired me to go to Michigan and to uh, become a doctor.
1: And I guess the, the doctors you were around when your grandfather had his stroke were neurologists and neurosurgeons, yeah. but you honed in on that. You know, I have to tell you, I have a child, an adult child, who has a very severe epilepsy. And uh, one of the searing memories I have was when she was 15, she went in to be considered as a candidate for neurosurgery. And they bore a hole in her head and put plates on her brain to see if they could find the focus of the seizures. And they were going to cut that piece of her brain out to keep the seizures from triggering. They inf- they took her meds away, induced seizures. For 10 days, they studied her seizures. And then her doctor called us in the hallway and said, I'm sorry, we can't, we can't do anything for you. It's too deep in her brain. And the most painful, one of the most painful moments of my life was going in to tell that little girl who had gone through hell, hoping this would be an answer that they couldn't do anything for. And it strikes me, and this is why I wanted to ask you, hey, I want to tell you how much I appreciate the work that you do. But also, how do you deal with those moments? Yeah. How do, you, you, you've obviously experienced a great deal of loss, among your patients, you've had to deliver bad news as well as performing life-saving surgery. How as a how is a doctor do you prepare for that?
2: Yeah, well, uh, you know, and and let me just say, I empathize with with you and your your daughter, David. I mean, it's, I mean, I I, um, I know I, I, I knew this story um before. Uh, and you know i i remember it really struck me then even you know because you do anything for your your child obviously so i i know that that's not necessarily what you want to talk about today but but i you know i really empathize with that um i i don't i don't i don't think you ever sort of have a um that you ever be, become better at dealing with that i guess you know i'm 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 not um there've been times when i thought uh this isn't for me um being a neurosurgeon, not because of the technical aspects of it and the, the the life of a surgeon. It was more exactly what you just talked about. Um, I'm not good at it in the sense that I, I don't have a strategy for it. Um, I remember once one of my professors in a very particularly tough um, story of a patient, uh, I was talking to him ahead of time because we were about to I was a resident at the time we had to go deliver some some really terrible news and I remember asking him like how like how are you going to do this and and he he was he was a really good guy but but clearly somebody who who had been hardened I think by by all this and he said all right he said here's a couple of of lines that I that I typically think about in my own head and one is to to remind people that um, uh, the pain of all this is is with us, but the person usually that we're talking about, the patient, is not experiencing that pain, and somehow that that was comforting to people, you know. And I remember when I when he told me that, I remember thinking to myself, how can you have a line for something like this? This isn't some sort of script, you know. I mean, I maybe I don't feel that way, and and I don't want to say that because I don't feel that way. Um, but I, I, I don't think that I've ever gotten used to it. And there have been times still when, when I just don't think that I'm the right personality for it because it's, it is hard. It, and it's, it's, you know, you, you are the most important person in these strangers' lives for a period of time. And um, I take that very seriously. You know, I, it, it's just I, that, that's what I can say is that I think about it pretty deeply every time I'm having these conversations. In neurosurgery, thankfully, you know, we, we often can do a lot of good for patients, and I, and I am reminded of that. But, you know, you do have situations, especially with trauma, and where someone is living their life, you know, driving to work one day, and then within hours everything about that person their life, their family's life, their community's life is different uh, because of something that happens. And so I always try and just put myself in their shoes for a second. I remind the residents of that now Now that I'm a professor myself to, to just take a beat. Just stop. You know, don't need to be in a rush. You know, just, just slow down because everything that you do, what you say, how you act, you know, your body language, think about how you might feel if you were on the other side of this conversation. So I don't know that that's a good answer. But no, no, no,
1: it's that. No, that's it's an honest answer. And I always wonder how uh, medical professionals grapple with that. There's obviously a lot of that going on right now, compounded by the fact that people can't even be with their loved ones in these critical situations. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. You are double-hatted now as a very prominent and distinguished journalist and a very prominent and distinguished neurosurgeon. But even in your academic days, you were writing about public health issues. Why were you doing that? And I'm not even going to ask you because we don't have the time, how you found the time. But why were you so focused on writing as well as studying medicine? You
2: know, I I came through... um sort of early 90s, um, late 80s, that's when I was in, in medical school and this this program and started my residency in 93. And as you know, around that time, there was a lot of discussion about healthcare. Yes. Um, it was, you know, 94 was the uh, proposed healthcare plan um, that the, the Clinton administration, Hillary Clinton, put forth at that time. And, you know, what I think struck me and a lot of people within medicine was that Doctors weren't really a part of that conversation. Um, you know, it was being conducted at a different level, and I think there was a sense among a lot of cl- clinicians that um, we're, we're losing a little bit of our voice here, and and you know, we 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 think we have something important to say. We know how hospitals work. We know how patients should be cared for, and there is a nuance here. Um, you know, that that is important to to get at, and so. For me, I, you know, I just said, look, I, I want to be a part of that conversation. Uh, I'm going to make it a substantive contribution. So I started just doing my own research. Um, I had, you know, people who, who supported me even as I was a resident. You know, I, I talked to my professors and people within the public health school. And the way I approached it was said, look, hey, there's other countries that are clearly uh, getting better health outcomes than we are, and they're doing it for less. That, that was the basic premise. So if that's the case, they get better outcomes and they're doing it for less, um, maybe we shouldn't be so provincial here and see what we can learn. Not all of it's going to apply. Not all of it's translatable. But I basically said I'm going to do, do an examination over a couple of years of 14 different countries and look at all these specific metrics, subspecialty care. Cancer outcomes, overall mortality—you name it—and uh, and then right here the differences between that place, which is a model and and the United States. And it wasn't uh, it was it was it was policy. You know, I, I can, some of it got uh, reprinted in the economist, some of it was in public health journals, but that was really what motivated it and I think, you know, um, uh, something that I remained interested in now 25 26 years later.
1: You not only remained interested in it and wrote about it, but you actually went as a White House fellow to work in the White House in the late 90s and you worked with Hillary Clinton. Yep. And one of the things you did was you evaluated why their health plan failed in 1994. Tell me about that experience and about your interactions with her.
2: Yeah, no, that 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 that, that was um, a a really fascinating experience. It was the White House Fellowship was a you know to basically teach you about executive leadership at you know the executive branch of government. But I ended up um, um, being able to work with Hillary Clinton, who was first lady. But this is three years post. Healthcare plan, you know, so ninety four was the healthcare plan. It obviously uh, did not it, it did not get passed, but there were a lot of lessons learned at that point. I think that you know one of the one of the biggest things that sort of came out of this was that um, they knew it was complicated, but I think I think what was challenging was that there were so many different participants. In this, in this whole discussion that maybe they didn't realize. They knew it was big, that you, you could put the numbers on it. But, but how many different sectors of our society healthcare sort of uh, affects is, is, I think, mind-numbing, even for people who are, who are in it. There's really no sector of our society that it doesn't affect. And then there was this, there was this uh, subjective part of the debate. I remember Wesley Clark, who, who had actually interviewed me for the White House Fellowship, and he was i think uh, allied commander at that point i had this conversation with him he was in one of these meetings on healthcare and and um his father was sick at the time his own father and he was telling the story about how you know they were maybe not going to provide a certain treatment or something that he thought his father needed and the reason that they weren't providing the treatment is because they didn't think it had a very high likelihood of succeeding, and it was very costly. It was, you know, in, in his mind, a, a sort of rationing of care. And, and as much as he advocated for, you know, lowering costs and improving health outcomes overall for the country, when it came to his own family member, it, you know, the debate sort of changed in his mind. And, and that was a, it, was, it was so instructive, uh, I think, because we ended up um, thinking, how do you codify that? how do you codify how people will feel about this not just how they think about it and 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 i thought that was that was probably one of the most interesting things overall. It affected organ donation. It affected reimbursements overall. It affected, uh, you know, uh, federal entitlements and how they would grow or not grow. It would affect how do we think about people. When you see somebody who has chronic diseases on five different medications and you know that if we uh, do more for that person in terms of home visits perhaps, ensure uh, compliance with regard to medications, that will help them. That will make them recover better, keep them out of the hospital. That's good. Do you think that way or do you think, why am I helping that person? They ate too much. They drank too much. They smoked too much. They moved too little. Why is it my obligation to help them? And it was that sort of thinking, you know, like how do people really think about this that I think I I, I learned and I think maybe would have been beneficial even in 94 for them to know what sort of obstacles might come up in a in a debate like this
1: well we certainly uh, we certainly confronted it when i yeah, was in the white house right. in 2009 2010 working on the affordable care act and of course this sense that you speak about that general clark articulated uh, really animated the opposition around this this fictitious idea of death panels that somehow government bureaucrats were going to decide who lives and who dies and right. you know those that wasn't the case, but it really touched something in people, at least some people, that was really visceral. My question to you is we have, and you're a reflection of it, in many ways, the most sophisticated healthcare in this country at the high end. You know, the thing you hear is well, if we go to universal healthcare, we're going to have to sacrifice all that. Is it possible to continue to maintain that standard and have that kind of health care and still incorporate the principle of universal coverage? I, I,
2: I'm very confident that it is possible. I mean, and that, that's, that's, you know, 25 years of really thinking about this, David. Part of it is that, you know, it starts with this, this, this um, fact that about 70% or so of chronic illness in this country is preventable. I mean, 70%. I mean, when you talk about a $3.5 trillion budget on healthcare, and then you say 70% of chronic illness is preventable, um, you know, that that frees up not only a lot of money, but a lot of uh, productivity in terms of people being able to work. Uh, it, It frees up a lot of energy that can continue to go towards these remarkable therapeutics and advances that we continue to make in medicine. I mean, I, I've not, I've not worried really uh, at any point during these last this last quarter century that American ingenuity was going to be sacrificed or somehow you know stymied by some of these policies. That just you know it it's, it seems like a great uh, sort of point of discussion, one that I think people should be willing to have. But that, I don't think it's a real concern. I do think that um, uh, there's been uh, a sort of backwards or upside down incentivization. You know, practice in this country that has uh, incentivized things that haven't really uh, allowed us to to operate full throttle. I was at a hospital system in Tennessee uh, you know a few months ago, and it's a hospital system where they take care of um, patients with a lot of chronic disease, uh, a lot you know a very high rate of diabetes, for example. And I was talking to the to the hospital CEO, and he was showing me, That on their staff, they had five general surgeons on that staff and not a single endocrinologist, which basically means from a medical standpoint that for diabetes, they were hiring the surgeons who were going to come in to do amputations, sort of late stage stuff, but not an endocrinologist who could help prevent those complications from happening in the first place. Why would that be? Nobody thinks that makes sense. That, that is because they, they uh, you know, are incentivizing surgical procedures that way. So, the, you know, surgeons, you know, oftentimes are painted, I think, with a certain brush. But you talk to most surgeons, uh, you talk to most doctors, most people who have been working in the system for a while, and they know what needs to be done in, in this regard. And they want it to be done because it, it could be them. They could be that patient or their family member. So um, I, don't, I don't worry that, that uh, you know, things like the Affordable Care Act or even, you know, broader expansions of federal ent- entitlements is going to be an opposing force to, to American sort of, uh, you know, uh, ingenuity and in progress by any means.
1: You know, it strikes me, even the situation we're in today and uh, whether we could have done more earlier to be prepared for it to at least lessen the blow on other things that you as a journalist have done quite a bit of work on. You did a series of films with Anderson Cooper called Planet in Peril about climate change. The biggest challenge in a democratic system among policymakers is how do you do those things to deal with challenges that are in the future? So even when you're talking about preventative care, which makes all the sense in the world, you're trying to prevent a disease rather than dealing with it in its chronic form you know getting ready for a pandemic you're trying to forestall the worst of what a pandemic could mean on climate action you're trying to forestall but it's hard to sell in a political environment actions that are meant to forestall things that you can't yet see <laughs> Th-
2: this is this is this is my life's work David, in some ways, what you're asking about here. I mean, that, that is the heart of the issue. If you're going to talk about things like prevention and all that, uh, you're fundamentally trying to prove a negative. You're telling people, you know, eat right, exercise, do all these healthy things and nothing will happen to you. It's not the most inspiring. And by the way, how do I know nothing wouldn't have happened to me anyway? You know, I, what, I, how I've thought about this, and this has been an evolution of thinking for me is that, uh, you really can't approach it that way. You can't just keep repeating the same thing and hoping that at some point people will say, ah, yes, I know I'm being forced to to do an act based on something that I can't see or feel. Uh, I'm going to do it anyways. That, that's probably never going to change for human beings. I think it's just part of our psychology. We respond to threats, threats that we can see. But I think a more powerful force uh, is that if you do these things, you're going to feel good today. Uh, you're going to be better. You're going to be more productive. You're going to be a better father, a better son. Uh, you're going to have better relationships. You're going to feel better as a result of engaging in these healthy behaviors. And, and that's, that's really, it's, it's really important to close the loop for people like that. Uh, you're not necessarily doing it for the future. You're doing it for, for right now.
1: You wrote a book by, uh, uh, on this uh, subject called Chasing Life. Yeah. And, uh, and a series uh, as well. So this has been, as you say, a, co- a constant mission for you.
2: There are certain countries that do a really good job at this. And why do they do? I mean, again, we're all human beings. Why is their is there psychology different somehow? It's a little bit different, but I think it's more that they recognize the immediate benefits of these things. And also, if they don't do it for themselves, then at least do it for the people you love. And I think that that's been a big point uh, during this most recent news cycle, with a with a pandemic, we are really truly dependent on each other in a way that most people haven't experienced before. We don't get to live in a silo and cordon ourselves off from the rest of the world. How you behave where you are uh, could affect how I live where I am, and 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 vice versa. And so, you know, even if you aren't doing it for yourself, you think, I'm going to be fine. I'm, I won't have a problem with this virus. And statistically, maybe that's going to be the case. But if I tell you that it could affect your loved ones, your community, uh, people that you don't even know, sometimes that's more inspiring for people. So I think, you know, overall for health, whether it's an individual or a public health level, convincing people that their actions aren't always just for the future But they are for right now, maybe in terms of how they feel and that we are dependent on each other and that being two pretty powerful forces it really seems to get through to people.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is the challenge, because the thing that political leaders are bad at doing is asking people for sacrifice. I mean, real leadership in moments of crisis are leaders asking people to sacrifice, but the harder thing is to ask people to sacrifice in ways that are unseen. So you're, you're, you're quite right that selling people on the immediate benefits is important. Let me just stipulate, because I'm going to have to do a lot of history really quickly here. I could go on for hours about your work, but you, in 20 years, at almost 20 years at CNN, you've been all over the world you've done a great deal of reporting from war zones, from uh, natural disasters, and and so on. But you've also done these sort of prospective pieces, including uh, one called Unseen Enemy back in 2017. It was about this very thing, yeah about the risk of pandemic. Why were we not better prepared at this moment?
2: Well, I, I, I think... Um First of all, people knew about this. It's not that we didn't know, and this was a total surprise. I mean, uh, Anthony Fauci, whose who's gravelly, uh, calm voice has become very uh, well-known to people. He gave a, he gave a talk in, in, uh, in um, 2017 at Georgetown which, in which he basically said a surprise pandemic is going to come within the next five to 10 years, which is such an interesting thing, right? Because it seems like inherent in the word surprise is that you shouldn't know about it, but somehow he, he knew about it. I interviewed him 20 years ago, one of my first stories at CNN. Uh, it was about HIV AIDS, and I asked him at the end of the interview, what, what, are you, what are you most worried about in your job as a head of infectious diseases? And he said, what I'm most worried about is that a respiratory virus that is highly contagious and more lethal than the flu starts circumnavigating the globe. That's what I'm most worried about. That was 20 years ago. So we've known about this. But I think the reason we weren't prepared to your question, uh, David, is, is the same reason that we don't prevent heart disease, that we don't think about things that we, we, we can't see. And, and do we really want to spend a lot of money developing redundancy and surge capacity and all that when it comes to viruses? We think about that with defense, but do we think about it the same way with viruses, you know? And, and, I, and I think that that's going to change after this. I mean, this is the first time in many people's lives that they've experienced this. We had a significant pandemic in 1919, another one 50 years later in 1969, and then 50 years after that in 2019. Not suggesting these things come on 50-year cycles exactly, but we knew this was going to happen And I think that, uh, you know, that surge capacity and redundancy and all that is going to be something that uh, is going to be a a lessons learned, not just that goes into a drawer somewhere, but a real lessons learned
1: that we apply. How much time did we lose in this particular instance? I mean, you you talk about January 7th, and I I think I described you as Paul Revere, but your hair must have been on fire as you saw the beginnings of this. And until the middle of March— We heard from the president that this was like the flu, that we would get through it, that there wouldn't be a lot of casualties, and so on. There was a fumbling of the testing by the CDC. We were slow on testing. We didn't launch the production of the extraordinary amount of emergency machinery and materials, protective materials we would need. How different would the story be if everybody was as alarmed on January 7th as you were?
2: I think it'd be a lot different. Um, you know and I know that's an uncomfortable thing maybe to, to say, because you know we're, we are talking about real lives, illnesses and, and even deaths. but um, you can just look around the world and you look at places like everyone brings up South Korea, and the reason they do is because they had some of their first cases at the same time we did, and they had their first evidence of human-to-human transmission around the same time we did, Germany similar. Germany has, um, I think, some 500, 600 people who've died, sadly, but a lot less than we have. Um, we probably lost four to six weeks. I think that the, the decision to start banning travel from China was a good decision, an important decision, and you know should be given the credit that it deserves, because I'm sure it wasn't an easy decision. The idea to quarantine people In, in, um, you know, from that flight from Wuhan, 195 people that were quarantined. That hadn't happened in this country in 60 years since smallpox. It was a a tough decision, but I think that was the right decision. But I think all along, the reason those things, those decisions were made were not to say, hey, look, we're going to just basically insulate ourselves from this. There's no way you can do that. It's a virus. It's going to spread. It was to buy time. And I think the the real concern... um, And it was very frustrating that with that time that was bought by doing those actions, that we didn't start actually creating more ventilators, having more personal protective equipment, creating that surge capacity. By the federal government's own modeling numbers, they had a pretty good idea what even a moderate pandemic, a mild pandemic, would require. And we weren't even prepared for that, for even a mild or moderate scenario, let alone a severe scenario. So that's 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 um. I guess that does make me a little angry, you know. I I don't get angry very very often, but that you know just how can you you know do you understand why you just did what you did, when you banned travel and you quarantine people? It was to to basically get ready.
1: Buy time, yeah. To
2: buy that time, and 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 now you know, and I, I remember doing these interviews with people, and 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 you know getting a lot of. Blowback on social media about you know fear mongering and, and all that, which is fine. I, you know you, you you expect to hear that sort of stuff, but I think what surprised me is even when I'm you know talking. You know I was at a press conference and I'm talking to people. Uh, who, are, who are officials who can make these decisions, and they're still saying, look, we're not really focused on ventilators right now. We're just going to focus on basically slowing the spread in this country. Of course, we're going to be focused on slowing the spread in this country. We can do two things at once. We can actually get prepared and have these ventilators ready uh, so that when people are showing up at hospitals, you know, in need of breathing machines, that we can confidently say we have enough. And instead, we find ourselves in a position where everybody on the planet wants these things, understandably. And I'm not sure right now, David, that we, we're we going to have have enough. And I, it's bothersome because there's going to be tough decisions that are made in hospitals, uh, hospitals that I know well.
1: Yeah, it's ironic. You know, we, we talk about These death panels, these fictitious death panels, now we may be forced in a position where people have to make, medical professionals have to make impossible choices as to who gets the benefit of this equipment and who does not. They have
2: these uh, committees that are now being set up in hospitals, David. This is how they've decided to handle it in several places, to basically say, we don't think it is fair to ask the treating medical team of, of nurses and doctors to make these decisions because how can you, you, you know, you develop such close relationships with these families and then you're going to have to go to some of these families and say, you know, we can no longer keep your loved one on the breathing machine. It's needed for another patient. So they have these independent committees that are just basically going to look at this in a more dispassionate way and look at the data and, and, and basically make these recommendations. These are just committees that are set up right now. I don't know that any of them have actually been utilized as of yet. I hope that they never will be, but I never imagined when I went to medical school that that's the kind of thing that we'd be talking about. You know, so it's 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 a it's a, it's a little it's a it's it's frustrating
1: for sure. You mentioned Doctor Fauci. You you just have done a, a really great podcast with him. You're you're doing this wonderful podcast for CNN, which is a comfort to everyone and he told his own story. It seems like he is managing both the uh, crisis right now and the president. Hmm. And it's been interesting to watch how deftly he's done that. But the president we saw yesterday who stood up and talked about how grave the situation was, was not the president of a week ago who said, we'll give the all clear sign on Easter. And Fauci Really seems like the guy who has made the difference in terms of the president's understanding of just how grave this is.
2: Yes, I I, I think I think that's that's true. And and I think what's really struck me about uh, Tony Fauci here, and I think David, maybe you'll appreciate this more than anybody, is that it, it, it is a deafness to it. But I think what people may not always realize about Fauci, and what really struck me when I was doing this longer interview with him, is that you know he 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 knows. A lot. And he knows, I think, a lot more than he lets on at times. It's very strategic in terms of how much he is going to sort of um, shock people, if you will. I mean, if he had come right out, you know, two weeks ago and said, we need to go in lockdown for eight to 10 weeks. I think he was he was aware enough that not only would that be tough for the American people, it'd be tough for him to sell that to the president. Doesn't mean that he didn't know that. When he said two weeks, the, the, the national pause, you know, that for two weeks, if you go back and listen to how he framed that, he said, you know, and then we'll reevaluate. And most people said, well, OK, maybe at that point we'll, you know, lift the restrictions. He knew that reevaluate at that point meant extend and maybe even get more stringent. He he is he is um, he he you know he's worked for five presidents. He's very masterful at how he basically interacts with people uh, in, in different ways, and I don't mean that in a Machiavellian sort of manner. I think he's he's doing it because he wants to do the right thing ultimately.
1: Yeah, well, no, listen, I I think that history will record his efforts here. Not just in terms of the med- the health public health emergency, but in terms of how he's managed a very difficult political environment, will really really uh, uh, shine on on Dr. Fauci. We're going to have to run, but I want to ask you before we go, Sanjay. You talk about your frustrations with how the policymakers handle some of these sort of existential challenges that we face. I know that you contemplated becoming Surgeon General in 2009. Uh, your brother ran for Congress in this last uh, year. You served in the White House. You worked with Hillary Clinton on this healthcare care issue. Not that you need more to do, but do you ever uh, think, maybe I should try my hand at being inside influencing these decisions on a macro level rather than just commenting on them from my platform at CNN?
2: Uh, Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, For sure. I mean, I think if there's a frustration as a journalist, and I've always been curious about your life because you've done both at very, very high levels, uh, obviously, Um, if there's a frustration as a journalist is that, you know, I think we we are such students and we dig so deep into things. And, and you know, 99% of what I learn about a topic uh, never really uh, makes it on air. And I get to uh, define problems, but not really get to execute solutions. That That's frustrating, I think, for someone like me and maybe for a lot of other people as well. I would, I, I, I really enjoyed my time doing public service. I, I think the only reason that I didn't take the job when, uh, you know, your 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 boss was so kind to, to offer it was was that I didn't realize that I would no longer be able to practice surgery as Surgeon General, which I found ironic. Um, <laughs> that, you know, I guess it's just, you know, understandably a Surgeon General is a job you want to be committed to. But, you know, I, I was, I, I really like practicing surgery. And if I left for four, eight years, I'd probably have to train again. And, you know, I just didn't seem like it was, You know, the right life decision. But I think that I would absolutely love to be in a position. I don't know that it would be electoral politics, but just in a position where um, I could I could, you know, have a voice that people uh, would 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 value in a way that would actually lead to solutions, you know, um, because there are solutions here. I I know them. I write. I I dream about them. I think about them all the time. I call my friends who are who are smarter than I am about these topics and say, hey, let me run this by you. Call me crazy. Talk me off a cliff. Or am I right here? You know, And, and that's what I'm constantly doing to be able to translate that into some some real action And what are
1: we here for otherwise? Listen, brother, I would like nothing better than to see you in a position to do that. Uh, I think the country would benefit from it, but we're certainly benefiting from your voice right now. I've said it behind your back. I will say it to your face. You're a national treasure. Thank you. I'm so comforted to know that you're on the job here. And I think I speak for a lot of Americans, so uh, Sanjay Gupta... Always good to be with you. Thank you for being with us today.
0: An honor for me, David. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Less. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.